Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is producer, engineer, and scoring mixer, Jason LaRocca. First of all, YouTube has a secret weapon, and it's going to whip it out in order to try to overtake Spotify as the platform that actually pays the most money to the music industry. So already, YouTube is the most popular platform for music. It reaches 85% of U.S. adults, and 55% get their music from music videos on YouTube. Only 24% get their music from Spotify. Some mind-blowing numbers, 694,000 hours are streamed every minute. And it brought in about $29 billion last year, which considering that Google bought it for about $5 billion way, way back, it was a pretty good investment. Now, YouTube provides about $6 million to the music industry, at least last year. Spotify was at $7 billion, but like I say, YouTube really wants to be the biggest driver of music revenue and wants to overtake Spotify. Its secret weapon is UGC, user-generated content, and about 30% of that $6 billion, or around $2 billion, comes from UGC. Now, what YouTube is going to do is they're now going to allow revenue sharing for YouTube Shorts. So they're going to make licensing really easy with what they call a micro-license. And that means it'll be easy to figure out if someone is actually using your music on a video. Just remember that YouTube Shorts is growing, and it's growing quickly. About 9% of users use Shorts weekly. 27% use TikTok. 15% Instagram Reels. Now, remember that the split is 55% of any kind of ad revenue that comes in goes to the creators. It's going to be a little different for shorts. Looks like it's going to be 45%. Now, we're not sure exactly how that's all going to work out, and YouTube has kind of been shy about telling us more of the details, but don't count out YouTube as a revenue source, as it looks like soon it's going to be easier to make some money on the platform. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. It's bobbyosinski.com. Now here's something that I thought was interesting. Josh Scott from JHS Pedals claims that he hacked the database of Sweetwater to look through the 43-year-old history to find out what is the best-selling guitar pedals. And even though he didn't do a complete rundown, 1 through 10, 1 through 500, whatever, he went through quite a lot in this video that he put out. So, what are the best-selling guitar pedals? You're not going to believe number one. It's the Behringer SF300 Super Fuzz, which is only $29. Now, this is a clone of a clone of a clone. 
basically it was a clone of the Boss FC2, which was a clone of the Univox Super Fuzz. But both of those are a lot more expensive, and <laughs> the Behringer Super Fuzz is only 29 bucks. Coming in at number eight is the Proco Rat. I remember when just about every guitar player had one of those, whether they used it or not, they owned one. There's also a couple loopers in the top 10, the TC Electronic Ditto Looper and the Boss RC1 Looper. Coming in at number 10 is the Crybaby Wawa. Number 12 is the Boss DS1, another fuzz. And number 14 is the Ibanez Tube Screamer. And at 36 is another one that when I was growing up, everybody had one, the Electro Harmonics Big Muff. So guitarists just can't get enough grit in their tone and pedals are still the number one way to do that. My guest this week is engineer Jason LaRocca, who's recorded and mixed music for major motion pictures, games, and television. Jason not only engineers the scores, but often produces them as well, along with doing the sound design and instrumentation. Jason has worked on films like Marvel's Moribus, Paddington, Aquaman, The Harder They Fall, Coming to America 2, Godzilla, King of Monsters, and the 2018 Oscar-winning documentary Icarus, among many others. He's also mixed the music for the hit video games Fortnite, Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Cyberpunk 2077, and Sony PlayStation's highly anticipated upcoming God of War Ragnarok. His TV credits include ABC's long-running hit fantasy series Once Upon a Time, Godfather of Harlem, American Crime Story, Handmaid's Tale, the award-winning miniseries Little Fires Everywhere, Fox's number one drama The Cleaning Lady, and the Amazon epic series The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. During the interview, we spoke about making the transition from musician to engineer, the differences between engineering music and post-production, the complexity of mixing Lord of the Rings, the many plugins in his mixing template, and much more. I spoke with Jason from studio via Zoom, from a studio in Los Angeles. Let's just go back and talk a little bit about your history and you getting into the business because you started as a musician, right? Yes. Uh, like you, I think, right? Yeah. It's very similar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like a lot of people do, you know, um, just a, a big fan of music and as soon as i was you know in my early teens i was picking up guitar and um you know trying to learn rolling stones tunes and got a couple of basic guitar lessons and and you know i i really just kind of i wanted to have a band and start playing shows like my thing was you know in in early early high school it was like i just wanted to get out and actually you know, see, see what I was really made of. So we, we kind of quickly started playing little pay to play shows and stuff like that on the sunset strip, you know, and my dad would pack up, you know, the, the tourist station wagon, we'd pack up all of our gear in the back of the station wagon, drive down to the strip and play our half hour set and go home. But that was, you know, that was the early days that, that quickly turned into, you know, having like a, you know, the, the task Port a studio for and you know making demos on that crude horrible demos that we would you know pass around to friends and you know we just didn't like i felt like we didn't really have studios were so expensive to go into and and i felt like that was this unattainable to us 
you know, to get into the studio and actually record music. So, you know, we kind of got very resourceful in, in making, you know, making a makeshift studio out of our bedrooms, basically, you know, in our, in our teens. So, you know, first it was the Fostex E16 before there was pro tools. I had like a little half inch 16 track tape machine and we cut some stuff on that. And then, you know, eventually got the Digio one when that came out and had a Mackie 2408 and, uh, you know, learned all about inline mixing and everything from that. So it was always just kind of like learning by the seat of my pants and doing it all of our, all ourselves at, at, in the beginning, which was a lot of fun. It was definitely, you know, I had no idea what I was doing, but it, it helped cut my teeth to the sort of engineering quote unquote side of, of what I was doing, you know, not knowing of course that that would, you know, take a different, take the trajectory that it did, but it was, it was a lot of fun and it was, you know, always a, a major side passion for me in terms of what I was doing creatively. So you started out as, as a musician and then you're engineering on the side. I take it you're like so many of us were the guy in the band that was always into this stuff, would always set up the PA and... Yeah, you know, we did a lot of house parties where we had no PA and I worked a job and bought a PA, basic PA, and set it up every time we played a show packed it into the back of the car, brought it there and, you know, did, did sound myself for the band. So I'd go out and turn around in front of the speakers, listen to it, you know, while I was playing guitar, turn the mic around and sing EQ and, and get levels and stuff like that myself. And then come back to the other side and do, you know, do the show did tons of those. I mean, everybody's, you know, when you're, when you're sort of passionate about something like that musically and you don't necessarily have, people around you who can help you technically that's just sort of how it goes you kind of like figure it out yourself so yeah it was it was part of the creative process and sort of the necessity was nobody else in my band around me hadn't much of an interest in it how did you make the transition to engineering as a profession well i was working for my dad who was a home inspector in los angeles and a general home inspector so he's basically a contractor in the seventies and eighties, and then became what, what uh, we call a home inspector. He goes around and just checks all the, the basic things of a home, the foundation, the roof and all that stuff. And became very popular actually around the time of the Northridge earthquake uh, here in Los Angeles. And he became really busy, you know, helping people with all their homes that had, you know, damage done to them and stuff like that. I actually started working for him as a side job, but I, you know, which was fine to make a little bit of money. He paid me, you know, $15 an hour, but I wanted to work in the studio. Like I wanted to like, just be fully immersed in music and, and just knew that this was not like, I didn't really want any other career path other than either being in a band and writing songs or being an engineer producer. Those are like, like my only two options. And, you know, I didn't, I wasn't going to engineering school and I wasn't, I wasn't doing that path, but I, I wanted to somehow get my way into a studio and, and knew that my chances were sort of slim, but I had somebody actually approach me very randomly, uh, a friend of mine who was in a band that we were playing shows with around LA. And he said, you know, I'm working for this, this film composer and, and he's, he needs somebody to uh, assist him at his new home studio up in the, in Calabasas and and would you like to meet him and see if maybe you guys are a right fit because I know you have a, a home studio at your place and I said sure why not and you know I knew nothing about film composition and any, anything really about post music post-production and 
anything like that. I was just, you know, a guy playing guitar in a band. So when I met him, you know, I didn't think much of it. And, and the meeting was, you know, kind of, I felt a little bit like I had disappointed him. This was Mark Isham, by the way, who I met in 1998. And, um, you know, he was looking for somebody who was like a, you know, like a Juilliard young composer who was going to help him with, you know, all of his writing and orchestrational needs and that sort of thing. And, and I knew that I wasn't that person. But I said, you know, I'd love to be here in the studio. I'd love to be a part of this. I don't, I know really almost nothing about what it is that's going on here, but I can learn fast. And I think I can be a tremendous asset to you. In fact, maybe I could just start showing up and, and helping you just as, you know, whatever, just as an intern to do whatever it is you need. And I did that for two weeks, actually. He just said, yeah, sure, go ahead, show up. And at the end of that two weeks, he was like, you know what? You should stay. I like you a lot. I think you're pretty cool. And uh, let's see what what comes of this. And that was basically what got me in the door. <laughs> to, he, at the time, he had, he had just built a, a, a whole uh, building for his, his uh, film scoring, writing and mixing, and put a, a Euphonic CS3000 in, in the room, had a, a MX80 tape machine, 24-track tape machine, uh, 32 tracks of D88 Tascam and 16 tracks of D88. And it was very, it was a very young setup. We had just put this all together and just racks and racks of patch bays and, and nobody had really dug into the CS3000 yet. It was such a brand new console that I thought, well, that, there's my opportunity. You know, I think if I can really learn this console and get really good at it, I could become really useful around here. And uh, so that's what I did. I studied it every night uh, after work and uh, became pretty darn good at any technical tasks that needed to be done on, on the console. I could set up pretty fast from setting up a recording session to a mix session, you know, using the matrix cube for routing, uh, controlling faders with, you know, MIDI controllers, outside MIDI controllers, all that stuff was, it was all there in the manual, but no one else really knew how to, put it into actual use. And so that was kind of my, my jam was like, I'm just going to become the CS 3000 guy. I'm going to get really good at this. And that was kind of like my in. And then from there, it just kind of, you know, took off. I just became invaluable. <laughs> a studio that was kind of like my home base for a few years had a CS 3000. Yeah. CS 3000 in one of the rooms that I used a lot, but uh, I had an assistant who was really hot on it. Mm -hmm. So I never dug into it as much as I could. And not only that, there were three studios in the complex. So I would get this one. This was in the C room, and I would get this one when the other two were not available. But I can remember being frustrated in having to rely on somebody else and not, you know, getting into it as much. It was complex because it was way different than it was the the first resettable console. Yeah, I think the old that was sort of like it was it was that new it was that new idea of a, you know digitally controlled analog console and a lot of what you could do on the console was not necessarily clearly visible and that was a new concept you know you didn't see everything that was there and you know once you got the under, understanding of the concept of the center section and that it, it did most of the work you know, you kind of eventually a lot of guys got to know it and love the console. It became, you know, obviously a very successful and and popular console, but it was sort of that initial, there was that like, whoa, what am I looking at? You know, is this thing, (laughs) you know? And 
And I knew that too, because Steve Krause, who was um, doing a lot of mixing and recording for Mark at the time in the late nineties and early two thousands, when I was there, um, he was mixing all this stuff at Mark Isham's studio on that console. And he knew it really well, but there was a lot of uh, technical things that as an assistant, uh, you know, I just got really good at, and I got, you know, really sort of made myself as invaluable as I could to kind of be that guy who, you know, everyone was like, well, we, you know, we got to have Jason here on the session because obviously this is going to run smoothly if we haven't run. Just like, you know, like you're saying with your sessions, it's like somebody who really knows the minutia of the console. Yeah. So two things happen then. You got your foot in the door to become an engineer and also you got your foot in the door in the film business. Yeah. Which was, you know, a, a path in a world that I, again, didn't really know anything about and didn't really know how much I was going to completely fall head over heels for it and, and really in love with it. And when I met Mark, uh, this was in 1998 when he had just, he was doing blade and he was doing all these great films, you know, he had, he had, he did blade. He was doing, you know, he had done flyaway home and, and previous to my meeting him and working with him, he had done like quiz show and Nell and all these films that I watched and really liked and, and the quiz show is like one of my favorite, you know, film scores. And, but I didn't really know it. You know what I mean? I wasn't really studying film music. And I was just like, this is, this is what goes on in this world. This, there's so much going on here that you don't think about it. You just sort of take it in when you watch a film. And yeah, again, I just sort of fell head over heels for that whole side of things. And, and music and post-production just sort of became kind of a, a major passion for me and but i i was still touring i was still you know doing my band and still doing that and assisting at the studio too so it became you know pretty tough but i'm you know i'm one of those guys that likes to work pretty long hours and you know i don't mind the grind but it was a grind you know doing the two things at the same time i'd work a long day and then i'd come home at seven o'clock and then we'd rehearse till you know 10 p.m and then i'd do the same thing again the next day and wake up at seven and go to work you know I didn't mind it. It was great. At what point did you graduate to doing your own sessions as an engineer? Uh, it wasn't till late. I mean, I had some opportunities when I was an assistant uh, for Mark where we did do some smaller sessions that I got to engineer. But, but as a, as a sort of like a real kind of engineer on my own two it happened sort of two different ways. One was with, with my band and, and with doing the sort of punk rock scene and that was when I got to uh, engineer the albums that we made uh, on our label, which was Side One Dummy at the time. And they paid for us to go into a couple of nice studios. We went into, you know, the boat in Silver Lake, which um, used to be owned by the Dust Brothers. I think now it's owned by Flea, uh, but a fantastic studio. And uh, got to engineer those sessions. And then we had done another album that we did at Sage and Sound which was in Hollywood. I think they might've changed the name of that studio now too, but they did a lot of Weezer records there, a bunch of stuff before that. And those were great because those were different consoles, different, you know, totally different situations and had never been in either one of those studios. So I got to have, and then we also had gone to Boston to do some, some work there where uh, Paul uh, Q. Coldry had engineered some sessions for us in Boston that I didn't necessarily engineer, but I was, I was studying him and kind of, you know, they're really looking over his shoulder and learning quite a bit from him. 
but that was kind of when I, I got my engineering start in terms of like working with a band and getting paid as an engineer was, was on my own records. And then on the film side, on the post side was I, at a certain point, the band had been touring full time and I had to kind of leave as an assistant at the studio with Mark, uh, which was in 2004. And as a freelance engineer, we worked, I think, together in 2000, I think it was 2007 uh, on, a, on a movie called Fame that he did the music for. And that was kind of my first, I think I did a little TV show for him before that, but that was like the first kind of real quote unquote gig that I got as a film scoring mixer was doing that film. And then we did a bunch of films together, uh, he and I. And then from there, I met a couple other guys like uh, Jeff Cardoni, who was doing the music for CSI Miami at the time. I worked with him on his score. And one of the things with, was that I also knew how to mix in Logic. So I kind of, you know, I told these guys, hey, listen, I know how to use Logic. I can use Pro Tools and I can use Logic too. So that was another thing that not a lot of engineers necessarily knew how to use Logic. In fact, a, a lot, I, I don't really know how to use it anymore. But at the time I, I did from my assisting days, I knew Logic really well. So I had that kind of, I think, edge up on some guys because I was able to, you know, engineer without going into a proper studio or go with working in pro tools, I could say, Hey, listen, I can just mix your stuff in logic. So I got some gigs, you know, from 2007 on, I started getting a couple gigs, either mixing pro tools or mixing logic from there. Okay. So you have experience in both music and doing film post-production. Tell me about the approach, how the approach differs for you when it comes to mixing. <laughs> well, I think one of the biggest things with, post-production is um uh is schedule you know and that there are really tight deadlines uh that you know that have to be adhered to and there's several things in play especially for my position as a scoring mixer is that the composer who is ultimately having me mix their music may be working right up until the last second in terms of getting approvals from their directors and producers uh, before I can mix the music. So we may have a deadline that's not moving and my time to start working on it may just start decreasing and decreasing and decreasing and getting smaller and smaller. And that deadline isn't changing. And, you know, that's just one of those things that I've had to get better at working with emotionally and working with technically so that it doesn't change the end result in terms of it sounding great and being, you know, technically perfect and still, you know, making everybody's deadlines, despite the people in front of me having to work a little bit extra or work a little bit longer to get their approvals done. So there's that major difference in that there's just a lot of moving parts in terms of when something actually comes to you, when you actually start working on something, you know, it's always just a big question mark. Everything's a question mark. Like I look at my calendar today and it said, here's what's happening in the next two weeks. And I got a, three emails saying, oh, by the way, the schedule is changing this week because the directors and, and producers need another day to, to work on approving the music. So my mix schedule changed this week. And it happens constantly. Whereas with a band, we're kind of making our own schedule in a way, you know, and working, working with artists and bands is sort of like, I just call them up and say, okay, the mix is done. Let's finish this, you know, and we have a little bit more of a relaxed feeling 
I don't know. That's a major, major difference is this, the sort of schedule and anxiety of, of kind of how to deal with all that emotionally is very different on the post side. So then you would have to rely pretty much on your intuition and experience because you don't have time to experiment. <laughs> you know, it, it's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, we had, um, we did this movie last year called, uh, the harder they fall and, um, for Netflix. And we had for like a week, you know, things were kind of a little touch and go and we were kind of getting ready and getting started to work on the mix for the score and for the, for some of the songs. And then sort of out of the blue, you know, I get this call from, from the music team and they're like, okay, we need this, we need this song. It's got to get done right now. They want to use it for the trailer. Uh, we got to like mix this right now. And I said, okay, uh, let's do it. And we were basically getting the files, downloading them onto the computer, mixing them. And then within like a few hours, I'm sending out for, for mix approval on this song. And at the same time, getting vocalists adding, you know, their parts as I'm getting the approval and kind of doing the whole thing kind of like at the same time. And we worked basically, you know, around the clock that day to get this song out where it was like, everything was kind of calm and peaceful. And then suddenly it was just like the whole thing just, you know, compresses down into a 24 hour period. And yeah, that happens. It happens a lot. And, you know, it's just like, okay, well, I think the mix sounds pretty good. You know, I hope, you know, check over this routing, check over, you know, uh, make sure all the plugins are working, you know, cause we're printing this and we're going, I actually have um, two rooms now. So I have this room uh, that I'm in right now, which is a uh, studio a at my place. And I have another room, which is a full duplication of, of my mix rig so that I can have the sessions open up in that room and we can actually check over them technically, uh, make sure there's no missed routing, make sure there isn't some plugin, you know, not sitting on a return or something like that. That's just passing dry signal that should be passing, you know, a reverb return or something like that. And I have uh, my assistant engineer just look through the entire session so that after we've printed it, we just make sure that there wasn't anything we missed so that I can be mixing at the same time and he can be checking it at the same time. So we have built some infrastructure that kind of helps mitigate some of that, you know, working really fast, you know, by the seat of our pants uh, factor, because it happens constantly <laughs> every day. What are you delivering typically in terms of tracks? What are they looking for? It, it varies, but we have... I'd say usually between 10 to 20, uh, usually 5.1 mastered stems of all of the different parts of the song. So the song will, at Unity, all the faders will play the mix. And if you wanted to, uh, you could mute you know, the drums or you could mute the high percussion or the bass or the pads and pulsing elements or strings or brass. So we put all that stuff out on their own mastered record channels and usually it ends up being about 10 to 20 you know master stems Uh, sometimes it's more than that sometimes it's less but it's usually about you know somewhere between 10 and 20. they're all 5.1 stems right i do it that way there's some guys that do it differently where they do you know some are stereo tracks uh some are five ones some are you know just an lcr just the front you know left right center speaker 
things like that. But I, I like to kind of make everything be the same format. That's just kind of something I feel translates better into the surround sound um, theater or home listening environment. So I like to do it that way. So everything for me is usually the same format. So if we're doing seven, one, I'll usually just make it all seven, one stems, or if we're doing five, one, I'll make it all five, one stems, but I don't usually break it up between five, one and stereo channels. I like to make it all kind of the same. Let's talk about Lord of the Rings, which you just finished and it's really long, nine hours worth (laughs) of of music. So uh, give me some background on that. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, uh, well, Bear called me last year, almost around a little bit before around the same time uh, last year, somewhere around July, I think. And he had said, you know, yeah, do you want to do Lord of the Rings with me? And I just thought, wow, this is, uh, yes, of course, this is incredible. And there was a lot of, a lot of prep, a lot of prep discussion in terms of how to accomplish you know, what it is he wanted to do with the score because, you know, he had set out to make just the most fabulously epic score for the show. And every episode is literally wall to wall music. And we had, we, first of all, we were also working with uh, the post uh, production team was, um, you know, in Australia. So they're 24 hours ahead of us or thereabouts. And our delivery, so our de- delivery deadlines were subtracted by a day. <laughs> so we, we lose a day no matter what we do. And, you know, it was, it was a lot to work backwards from in terms of knowing those parameters and, and how do we accomplish, you know, recording all this stuff in all of the various places that we're recording it and then have it all come to one central place to be edited uh, and constructed and then come to us for balancing and further editing and mix that in with all of Bear's synthesizer tracks, which on this kind of show, there weren't a lot of, but, but his, his uh, synth masters, as we call them, which is, which is basically everything that he has in his uh, Cubase sessions gets printed down. So he has, you know, maybe 30 or 40 different uh, drum tracks and, some synthesizer tracks for support, and then all of his mock-up string, brass, woodwind, and choir parts, all separated and in, in one big print so that we can use that stuff or not use it as we wish uh, to blend in with all of the live recordings. So we started there by just discussing, well, how do we get, how do we get that material from him in a way that's translating perfectly from how he last heard it to how I'm hearing it now in 5.1. So we actually did just about, I'd say three, three and a half, almost a month really of just talking about his Cubase material and getting that to me and having it translate perfectly and surround. Cause some of the stuff was pretty crucial. He had some elements that did stay quote unquote in the box, though they were recorded from his rig. And we wanted to make sure all that stuff translated really, really well and sounded exactly like he had it because he did a lot of effects and a lot of panning things and a lot of stuff that he wanted to make sure obviously came across in the final mix. So we did a lot of prep work just on that and building the the mix sessions so that I could fit it all in one machine because I also like to work in, in one Pro Tools machine. So getting all those tracks 
plus the print tracks, um, plus the video and, and the dialogue material and all that stuff, I had to work pretty hard to get a template that would lay out and accommodate all these uh, tracks, plus the print, print tracks, plus all the tracks we ended up recording uh, so that it all could play back on one machine. So we did a lot of prep work in terms of that. I feel like that's a big part of it, was just really just prepping this show and going through so many of the details of, of how and when and where all this stuff was going to land so that once we started going and we were in go mode, we had a lot of things worked out in terms of uh, you know a lot of the pipelines and things like that. So they had recorded a lot of the orchestra at either Air or at Abbey Road Studios. So we did a lot of discussing with, with the Air team and, and Abbey Road team giving us this material onto a server so that we could actually take the just the strings because what they would do is they actually did two days of, of just recording the strings and then two days of just recording the brass and the woodwinds. But I needed to mix as they were recording. So I didn't wait for them to finish the strings, brass, and woodwinds. I took each cue each piece of music that they had just finished only whatever it was they finished. if it was just strings, they would send us the strings for just that piece of music. And I would start mixing in just the strings. And then when they had the brass and winds available, we, we started mixing that. So it became a little complicated in terms of how we named sessions on the recording side so that they didn't trip up on, well, we've already given Jason this part of the session, or we've already given him this part of the session. So we made a, a whole, we designed a whole system for how to get all these things as they were becoming available and mix them into the mix session. So we had a whole chart on that would show me, you know, what I was still missing from a song. Okay. I'm missing, you know, flutes, I'm missing uh, winds and brass elements. I'm missing, you know, Balron drum. I'm missing, you know, all these different things so that we would know what we were, we still needed in that session before we could actually ship it off to bear to listen to and improve. So there was just a lot of preparation work in terms of all that, because it, I didn't have the, the luxury of time to be able to wait for all of this material to be recorded and then say, cool, now let's mix. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it took about a week just for them to finish recording everything. So I was mixing as they were recording so that by the end of that week, I actually had quite a bit of it in place and could start sending bare you know, material for approval. And then we would take that second week to basically go through rounds of, of mixed notes, you know, bear was, was writing at the same time, the next episode. So he wasn't able to come here to the studio to listen to anything. So we would send him uh, material to listen to and he would send me back notes and then we'd spend the day, you know, covering all those mixed notes, send him back another round of, of mixes he'd send back another round of, of notes the next day and we'd spend that day doing mixed notes. And we would basically right by the end of that week, right down to the wire, we'd have it, we'd have it all approved. And then, then we took us about a day and a half or so to, to print all the material and then ship it up to Australia. Sounds complicated. It is very complicated. And we, and we, we but we made it every time. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. I'd love to get into this more, but I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about gear. What monitors are you using out of curiosity? Yeah, these are Meyer Asheron speakers. 
uh, pretty simple. You know, they're horn driven speakers. They're, they're meant to be in a room much larger than this one, but um, I, I love them a lot. I've mixed on them for, for a while now. These actually were in my friend's house. Uh, Tom Marks, a fantastic re-recording mixer had this set up with a bunch of JBL speakers as his surrounds and, and had a really fantastic Atmos mixing theater in his home. And I mixed a lot on them, actually mixed a lot of film scores on them. And eventually he actually sold them to me. And, um, and I just absolutely love them. They, they tell me a lot about, you know, what I need to hear. They translate really well to wherever they, they go off to. I don't really mix on much else now. I used to have other like, you know, smaller speakers here, but I don't really listen to much else other than these speakers at this point. Since you're going so quickly when you're mixing, there must be certain plugins that you kind of always use. Yeah. Well, I have a pretty big template that has a lot of stuff in it. That's just from, you know, carryover from each project. So I have a lot of things that are already instantiated that are close to, you know, what I would have on any given sound. Like I have a couple of go-to plugins. One is a plugin called Equality from DMG. I think it's a fantastic EQ. It could do a lot of things. I use it for mastering. I use it for mixing. But what I really love about it is that it has an analyzer on it, which, you know, there's a lot of plugins now that do that. But this was one of the early ones that that did it, had a great frequency analyzer on it. I'm not the smartest guy when it comes to EQ. I can't hear what necessarily what a frequency is. So when I can see it, I just grab it so much faster in terms of like getting rid of a, 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 you know, a frequency that's just peaking or something like that. I can see it really fast and get rid of it. So that's a really important plugin for me that I use on kind of everything. Also, Boz Audio makes a great plugin called uh, Mongoose that I really love and use on like every synth track. So I put everything... What's great about the plugin is that it has a feature on it where it puts everything below, say, 200 or 100 or whatever frequency you set it at. It puts everything below it in mono. So your low end is always really phase accurate and, and super tight. I, so I love that plugin on all of the synths, like anything that comes to me from the composer, even drums, uh, synthesizers, uh, any electronic tracks that I get from the composer, I'll put all the stereo tracks through a mongoose plugin. So I have that actually um, in my template on every track. And then I have, oh, Gullfoss is, is another one that I use pretty standardly on, on things. I love that on the orchestra. Just as like, a, it's usually just doing kind of a sheen, but I, I love it even on, and it, to me, it is not limited to sources that need help or, or troublesome. I love it as just a sheen on even fantastic recordings. So that's usually sitting already on my orchestral buses. Gosh, there's, I mean, like the Lexicon 224, that's another one I have on a lot of things already kind of sitting in my template. I have that usually on my drums. Guitar, actually on the orchestra too. I actually have, um, I have usually a couple of reverbs preset on my orchestra. So like I have sort of like a, a hall for basic extending of the, the room tone that I use, which is just an exponential audio uh, symphony reverb in 5.1. But then I also use a 224 uh, for doing sort of like long, really sort of more just sort of blown out reverb that kind of like goes on for like 15, 16 seconds. That's just kind of fun sometimes to hear the end of a cue just sort of evaporate off into the distance. And that's 224. So I, and I have that kind of in my template as a preset thing as well. So that's on my string bus. 
so again, that's UAD. I love a lot of UAD stuff. Oxide is usually, you know, one of just a plugin that's just sitting across my buses usually uh, as a mastering kind of smiley face. Yeah, gosh. I mean, a lot of plugins. I can go uh, Saturn 2. I love Saturn 2. I think that's a fantastic. I, I like to use it for EQ, actually, even though it's kind of a saturation harmonic plugin. I love it for EQ. Last question then. We can go on and on, but maybe we'll do round two of this. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or you learned along the way? Well, I think uh, the biggest thing for me, one of the things that has helped get me out of some funks when I'm unsure about a mix or when I feel like I can't get out of a technical problem on getting a mix to get approved or, or, or getting it to a point where I think it's really good is that it isn't looking past the technical side of it and looking at the emotional reaction. And that if it's the, the desired emotional reaction in the audience listener and being an audience listener to what it is you're doing uh, as a mixer and responding to what that is uh, in, in, in a way that, is honest so that you you can generate that desired emotion is really more important than any technical thing you could ever do with a mix and that i was watching one of your interviews and and recently where somebody had asked how do you know when a mix is done and <laughs> you you know you could go around circles and circles on changing it because you can you can change it forever but if it's getting that desired emotional impact then it is done and if you felt something when you listened to it and it was blowing you away emotionally, then it doesn't matter technically if something was wrong or if that you missed something or you, you, know, you could have done a better delay throw or something like that. Those things don't matter anymore. It's just about that desired emotional impact. And that's helped me a lot because I feel like I've gotten, I've gotten stuck on things thinking, I'm not good at this. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't get an approval on something, you know, and it's just like, well, you know, just listen to it. Just use your ears and listen to it. You can find out more about Jason at jasonlaraca.com. That's Jason, J-A-S-O-N, Laraca, L-A-R-O-C-C-A.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, You'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.